Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 115 very clear in our articulation that we're not talking about a project or a program or an initiative. We are modernizing the trading system so it's fit for purpose for the next 100 or 200 years. If you do it digitally, it shall have the same effect as if you do it on paper. It's beautifully simple. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone. I'd like to welcome Chris Southworth and, and Nick Davies to the panel discussion. Interesting, we're switching it around this time, so rather than you guys interviewing the panel, it will be the other way around. My name is Tapesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global, and on behalf of Trade Finance Global, we're delighted to support and be media partners of the C4DTR Digital Trade Conference and Awards. This is day three. It's the final day of the conference. To our Trade Finance Talks uh, listeners as well, welcome both. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Let's start off with, this is a bit of a wrap of the conference. And to those that might have missed a few of the sessions, it would be good to just hear a summary of the key themes. So we'll start by discussing some of those key themes, unpicking some of the areas that were discussion points that were contentious, etc. And then we'll turn it around into more of a future looking view in terms of how we can future proof trade finance what and what it means. Because certain trade finance is undergoing quite a bit of a makeover, but it's quite hard to actually grapple and and see what the effect that's having on the wider community. Can you give a quick introduction as well and then just unpick some of the key themes that you've seen over the last couple of days? My name is Nick Davis. I'm the uh, director of the Centre for Digital Trade and Innovation here in the ICC United Kingdom. I must admit, as my first uh, conference of this type, it's been uh, a really positive experience for me. And I thought that the level of engagement and the interest and enthusiasm shown by everybody, both virtually and uh, in person on the day yesterday, was absolutely fantastic. And I'm absolutely convinced that I didn't hear anything over the three days that suggested that we weren't needed, that we weren't in the right sort of area, and that there was a big prize to be had. I think we heard from a broad range of the stakeholders. And on the first day, we heard how all the tools are in place, the legislation, the standards, the treaties, the technology. On the second day, we heard that there are mechanisms for collaboration. We are learning from the past and we're able to plan things so that we don't repeat the mistakes that uh, have been made or the different approaches that are needed to the future. And today we heard that actually there is an awful lot going on already. So we are not starting from scratch by any means. There is plenty of stuff that's been done globally and by some very big and very reputable institutions. There really is a real opportunity here to show that this can all be done from the master of the roles, who's the second most senior judge in the country, down to the tech providers, to the banks and to ports. Everybody is in a really positive frame of mind. So I'm really enthused by this. And I hope that uh, we can build on that over the coming 12 months. And I sincerely hope that if and when we get back together this time next year, we'll have been able to make some real progress. Thank you very much. And Chris, I think you said in one of your recent white papers that the UK needs to lead and put a rocket under COVID recovery, unlocking $9 trillion of growth in 2026. Can you just explain 
who the key stakeholders were that were attending the conference. And can you talk about what the opportunity is and what that common goal is? Mm. I think it's really interesting. Obviously, we'll crunch the numbers more. But I mean, looking at the numbers so far, I think we've just shy of a thousand people have been participating this week from every single region in the world. It's unbelievable. I think it's double the size of last year. And it's certainly the largest conference of this type on this agenda in the whole of the ICC network. That's a reflection of the role that we're playing. Uh, which I hope is positive and constructive and trying to find solutions and being proactive, but also the activity in the market and the interest in the market. I completely agree with Nick. The level of engagement, the quality of the discussion is unbelievable. I mean, it really is. You can really see the depth of work going on and that's coming through in the conversation. So we're really getting now into the all the practicals, which is the questions, of course, that we get asked. We very much wanted to sort of present this conference as an opportunity to get into the practical detail, the opportunities, the challenges. You know, how do we move forward? I think all of that has come out in the conversations, both in the networking opportunities, but also in the sessions themselves. And to have that global engagement is exceptional because the only way we're going to do this is if we're working together. And I think that's really come through this concept of collaboration, working together, not leaving anyone behind. This is a common endeavor. That, I think, for me, is a huge takeaway. In terms of our role, obviously, this is a global activity. So we've all got to play a role. And I think we've seen voices from other parts of the world that are also doing amazing things. I mean, Benjamin from Mombasa yesterday was amazing. There's stuff going on, which is exceptional. There is a role, isn't there, for organizations like ICC to have a clear vision, clear roadmap, clear direction of travel to just keep that leadership coming, you know, just keep us pointing in that same direction, keep aligning, keep catalyzing, not be afraid to jump in and provide solutions into the market, test systems where other people are not testing them. We're also helping move the agenda forward. I like to think that's playing a positive role in getting everybody fired up. And then, of course, in June, I think the change in English law is going to put rocket boosters under the whole environment because we've never had, we've talked about legal has come up in almost every session, I think. It's so important, this legal environment piece. English law is not going to solve every problem, obviously, but what it will do is it will give us a legal environment at scale, which we've never had before. It'll open up options, which we've never had before at an international scale. And that's going to be really interesting how we all respond to that. The big question for all of us is, or the challenge is to leverage it. We've got to leverage it because it won't solve everything. We've still got to keep banging the drum to countries to reform laws, but it will give us a really good interim platform where we can digitalize whole supply chains, whole processes, all the commercial activity can go effectively digital. The only requirement really is to, well, either use Singaporean law or English law, but I mean, that's a great combination and it's a great start. Thank you very much. So one debate that piqued quite a lot of interest yesterday was really one around learning from the past. And uh, we'll start from the past, we'll move to the present and then take a future looking view. The Gartner hype cycle is often used to describe a lot of the advancement of technological innovation. I'd probably say we're at the slope of enlightenment now for trade tech following the recent failures. Can you summarize some of the key findings and also what your thoughts are on learning from some of the past things we've seen in the market? I think both Chris and I are, in a sense, we're both very tiggerish in our approach to these things. We always look on the positive side. And, and there's a there's just a little voice in the back of my head thinking, what about the people who weren't at the conference? What about the people who are still have doubts? What about the corporates who we really need to get engaged in the agenda here? We made quite a lot of reference over the course of the three days. The dial is still moving very slowly 
on the increase. The law, the technology and the, the treaties and the standards will all make a difference. But it's that engagement from the real trading communities that will make the difference. I think you're right. I think there's been quite a lot of overselling and hype concerning the technology that does underpin this. But I think what really reassured me about the proceedings over these last three days was the breadth of the stakeholders who were all saying, this is doable. It's almost a given now that we've got the tools in place. When you get people like Sir Jeffrey Boss, when you get people like a senior trade financier from Lloyds Bank, when you get people like the CEO of various companies saying, and do this, and we can do this together. In fact, we must do it together. I think that really does show there is something in this, that this isn't flash in the pan hype or sales pitches. This is real stuff. And this is real stuff that can have real benefits. We've just now got to take those baby steps towards making this a reality, but without losing sight of the fact that there is a transformative vision out there. So I make no apology for having a vision. Won't be doing is expecting it to be delivered on Monday. We will need to take those uh, steps towards it. So I think that breadth of consensus is something that is really encouraging in that regard. Chris, what's, what's the vision? I mean, interoperability and technologically agnostic platforms and companies were talked about a lot and also the different levels of interoperability. It's all very well talking about it, but there's organizational, there's legal, there's tech, there's semantic. What is the wider vision for where we're looking at in terms of a trade ecosystem? The vision is that we are simply modernizing the world trading system. And I think we've got to be very clear in our articulation of that we're not talking about a project or a program or an initiative. We are modernizing the trading system so it's fit for purpose for the next 100 or 200 years. And that, of course, means moving into the digital economy. And we've got to get that message clearly across to everybody, because if we're not doing this, why are we doing trade activities overall? I think this is getting the environment right. One of the um, takeaways, I think, from some of the sessions is, are we, well, it's a question really, are we focusing enough on the environment? We know there are legal barriers. We know we need to develop common standards. I'm not worried about technology. I'm not worried that we don't have enough brains in the room or on the job. But we've got to get the environment right for everybody so that the market can flourish. And then we can say, okay, what's the failure next? And let's try and solve the failure. But if we get the environment right, everything will scale. I think that's really important. And then in terms of the approach, 100%, this has got to be about interoperability. I think, interestingly, being in Asia in the last couple of weeks and then coming back over here into Europe, there are different approaches to this. You can cake in different ways. That is completely okay, whether you take a platform approach or a non-platform approach. The key is interoperability. The platforms, the systems, the processes just need to talk to each other. And let's keep it simple. Ultimately, it's about information flowing. And information can only flow if it's in a standardized format. It's not much more complicated than that, really. There's lots of hard wiring, but let's please not talk about the hard wiring when we're talking to companies because it confuses everybody, it scares people, and we don't need to do it. All we're saying here is there's a cheaper, faster, simpler way of trading. It's more secure, it's more sustainable, or at least it will enable a more sustainable system. And this is how you do it. And here's a solution. Here's an example. This is the benefit. That's the way we convince and persuade companies. But it's about interoperability, I think, number one. 100%. It's about open systems, number two. Having said that, I do think the future will be a bit of a mixed economy. I think there'll always be a place 
for closed systems, but it's about having both. And at the moment, we don't have that choice to bring the cost down, make it more accessible. We have to have open environment alongside the closed environment. I think those two things will live together. From an institutional perspective, which is where obviously our job, we have to be agnostic. And I think that's important for governments too, is let the market come in. And anyone who's sitting in, certainly in the UK, but we're not alone in Asia, there are technology solutions coming in almost every week. And it's really interesting because you're starting to see different solutions in different areas. And that opens up all sorts of possibilities. And I'm sure there'll be lots more innovation. You know, we've just got to stay agnostic to it. So we don't, we make sure that we're future proof. It's all about future proofing. In terms of constituencies, I completely agree with Nick. We've got to be very conscious. There are a lot of, the majority of companies are actually not in the room and they're a long way away from where we are. So that educational piece is really, really important. We've got to get the word out and give people practical solutions to how they can participate in the system. Thanks, Chris. And going back to those practical examples and case studies, Chris, we heard quite a few real live case studies over the past couple of days. What's your favorite example of stuff that's live right now? We've spent a lot of time with the finance industry, so there's always good examples in that space. In many ways, they've been sort of ahead of the curve because they're very much kind of driving a lot of this agenda. I was really interested in today's session on food and drink. The question I'm asking myself is how quickly can we get to tipping point where digitalized trade becomes the norm? And how fast can we do that? Because once we get there, the market will look after itself. It will just drive itself. And we can focus on other areas where the market needs support. And then when you look at it like that, it's all about strategy and it's all about tactics and it's all about being smart and clever about how we go about things. And if you look at the bulk of trade, you know, look at the high value, high volume. That's why we're focusing on legal reform in the G7. That's why we're focusing on the G20, the big economies, that's 80% of world trade. But if you look at it from a sectoral perspective, that's also quite interesting because there are four or five sectors that really make a huge difference. It's auto, it's pharma, it's commodities, it's food and drink, you know, retail. If we home in and we had a perfect example today from the food and drink, Mellon & Co. are giving really clear examples. And the business cases are quite different. That's interesting. It's about food waste. It's about food security. It's about speed. It's that faster bit. And that's different. If you remember last year, we talked about this a little bit, that each different constituency has a slightly different business case. For some, it's about getting rid of all the bureaucracy. For some, it's about risk. Others, it's about sustainability. And then others, it is about speed. It's about how do you get over that border as quickly as you can and get the product. I really like the focus on let's pass the benefit down to the consumer, to the buyer, to the client. And it's not just about removing cost, is it? It's about getting, making sure that cost reduction, that cost benefit trickles down the system so everybody benefits. I really like that today because that's exactly the examples that we need. We just need them in, in other sectors too. Thanks, Chris. Nick, I know Bimco gave some good examples in case studies around the iron ore piece and something like 45 million bills of lading or something like that. What examples kind of piqued your interest over the last few days? I think if I may blow a little bit of our own trumpet here, it's the Arkits one. We're literally next week on the 14th of April, a consignment of plastic molded pipes will be leaving Felixstowe bound for Singapore. And at the moment, there will need to be a paper bill of lading to get it onto the ship. We will be mimicking, we will be running a parallel digital process, and it will run end to end with the military-grade security that we heard Barry Child talk about yesterday. We will be getting an academic at Teesside University to assess the difference between the cost and the time associated with the paper process and with the digital. And we will play that back critically, not to you or to the ICC or 
to the banks or anybody else, but to the user, to the exporter themselves. And we will ask them to verify that and for them to say, look what we've saved on this transaction, doing it digitally. Then you can do what you like with those figures. You can take that $5 saving, whatever it is, and you can multiply it by whatever figure you like. And I can guarantee you it will be big. And that is the sort of thing that I think will really turn the dial on this. And that's not a big, that's a smallish plastic molding company in the Midlands doing something innovative and, let's face it, quite brave, but doing it because they recognize that things can be done that way. And then it reflects what, uh, as Chris said, Mellon and Co. worthy winners of the award last night because they've been doing it for some time. And Justin Simborski, if you've ever heard him speak, as we did at the House of Lords, he cannot understand why everybody's doing this. And he puts it in a very blunt way that I'm sure neither Chris nor I would uh, get away with. But he is very passionate about this. And the more I think about it, the more I hear from those sorts of people, the more I think it's a no-brainer. Just do it. You know, that's the message I do. How do we scale this and bring this upstream? Because I imagine as the transactions get bigger, more complex, or there are multiple smaller transactions with numerous actors, logistics companies, the trade financiers, the legal guys, and the other actors, how do we scale and grow these transactions? I think that came up quite a lot over three days. And we heard a lot about customer engagement around um, bringing people together, around collaborating and about standards and so on. I think it was Nolan right at the beginning in one of our early sessions said it's about the people. It's not about the tech. It's not about the money. It's not about the documents themselves. It's about the people. We just need to bring those people with it. You know, remember that there is a Bob the warehouseman with a clipboard. There is a Eric the, the receipts clerk tapping away at his laptop in the uh, receivables building. There are blokes and women on the boats loading this stuff up. We've got to bring those people with us and we've got to get them to realize that things are capable of being done differently. And I think the other thing that emerges is simplification. The reason why we have 40 or 50 different documents involved in an international trade process is because nobody's ever taken a step back and said, let's start again. It's always been, let's just build a little bit more on what we've done for centuries. Here is an opportunity with all the things that are going on for us to take a step right back and say, what do we actually need to do a safe, secure, environmentally efficient and cost-effective international transaction? And I think if we boil it down, forgive me if I'm repeating it, we need three things. What is it? Who owns it? Who's paying for it? Certificate of origin, the bill of lading, and the promissory notes or the ledger of credit. If we can digitalize those three functions, get them confirmed in the same digital environment, enter the data only once, and have the same data matching those three functions, that to me is transformation. And that will mean something to those people and will be much more obvious to them than any reference to electronic bills of lading or the electronic trade documents bill or letters of credit and so on. All of that stuff is pretty opaque to them. But I think if we can get this, the narrative story that we're telling down to those not simplistic, but simple terms, then I think people will come with us. Let's go back to the business benefits of this. And Nick, I love that. What's in it? Who owns it? And who's paying for it? Chris, what's the business benefit of digitalizing these documents, who benefits? Is it the banks? Is it the corporates? Is it the SMEs and household? Because from what I heard yesterday, it's not necessarily just about the cost saving. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point, that, isn't it? I think it's interesting, this simplification as well. The good news is it's not just us saying it. You heard it from the UK government saying it. I mean, it's pretty dramatic. And you also heard it from most of the pilots, people actually doing the work. We're all spotting the opportunities to dramatically simplify trade. We don't need to do trade in the next 100 years in the same way we did it. And let's please not digitalize a 100-year-ago process and make that the next 100 years. Let's use grab the opportunity. I'm all up for that. And it looks like others are too. So I think that's really radical. It's getting actually quite difficult to explain the business benefits in a simple way because there's so many of them. We started off just quite a basic level saying, look, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's simpler. This will lead to a more sustainable system. It's the enabler to the sustainable system. That's all come out in the conversation conversations a lot. It's more secure. That's come out of the conversations. But we're now hearing lots of nuances, aren't we? Whether it's risk. And I think even for investors, we've got to talk more to the investors. Because if you're putting big investment into a solution, then let's invest a bit in the environment because that de-risks the investment, right? So you've got risk management's in there, all that AML, KYC, bureaucracy, let's get rid of a lot of that stuff. We can't get rid of it all, but we can definitely make it smarter. It's the speed piece, you know, how do we get goods over the borders, especially perishables in a smarter way. It's that traceability piece that's come up today. That's interesting, especially for high value, high volume goods, sorry, high value goods. Again, technology solutions are in the market. How do we scale them, create the environment for them to scale? So I think there are so many benefits. Even if you look at digital identities alone, it's a long shopping list. In a way, our challenge is to condense it and tailor it and nuance the arguments now. We've got to go, we can't just make a generic, it's faster, simpler, cheaper. We have to do that, don't get me wrong. But when we're going to constituencies, I think we have to be quite specific and say, for you, these are the benefits. These are the examples where we can prove those are the benefits. The good news for all of us are when we did the original business cases, the numbers were huge. You remember that? So nine trillion in the G7 and one trillion. I mean, it was just almost eye-watering figures. And we didn't know at that time, what's this actually worth at company level? But every single example is dramatic. It's 40% here. It's 50% there. It's eight days to one day. Those are the examples. What CFO or CEO is going to look at that and say, that's a bad idea. It's efficiency, isn't it? Every business is great at being competitive. We just need to put those examples into the public realm. And I think that to your earlier question is really crucial. How do we scale? We've got to communicate. We can't hold this in a bubble of people. We've got to get it out there. People can make rational business decisions, which is exactly what the private sector is amazing at. They will do that. And that's when the market will really move at scale, I think. But the business case is huge. We have to really think about how we narrate that. How do we articulate that? It's going to be a whole brochure at the rate we're going at the moment. But I think that's good. And I think you succinctly summarized it as the AML, KYC piece, there's the risk piece, there's the speed piece, provenance, sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about the, the Act, the Electronic Trade Documents Act, or the bill that's coming through Parliament, because obviously there's now tons and tons of rhetoric. Everyone's very exciting. Someone said yesterday we should celebrate the success. But I don't think that if that passes the House of Commons in a month's time, I don't think that every company overnight is going to change. So moving on to a future looking piece, what does that journey look like from now until the bill is enacted and then to truly digitalize some of those paper documents? the certificates of origin, bills of lading and promenades. Nick? I think we heard very succinctly from Sir Geoffrey and others yesterday, the bill is just the first step. And I quite like Lord Holmes's phrase on this, it's the best piece of legislation that nobody's ever heard of. Why should they? It's just an enabler. And in fact, it doesn't actually change very much at all. It doesn't change the basis upon which trade is conducted. It just says that if you do it digitally, it shall have the same effect as if you do it on paper. It's beautifully simple. But the phrase that I think that struck me, and, and um, Sir Geoffrey did emphasize this, is that it depends on 
I forget the exact phrase, I think it's reliable system or an effective system. There must be an effective system within which those techno-legal functions take place. So that's good possession and rivalrous transfer must be conducted in a reliable system. And I think our job between now and the Act becoming fully enacted and in its immediate after its passage is to show we can create those effective and reliable systems wherein that techno-legal functionality can be undertaken. And that's why it's great that we've actually got the lawyers who understand the tech, like Professor Green, like Miriam Goldsby, like some of the others we heard from, uh, Guy and uh, others, on our shoulders saying, yeah, that works or that doesn't work or what you need here is that extra bit of stuff. So that we're So instead of us doing the techno stuff, then going back to the lawyers and saying, and them saying you can't do that, it's actually them being in the room as we're doing it and saying, yes, you can do that. Or them saying, actually, you need a bit of tech that does this. And then we get the techies delivering on that techno function, uh, that legal function. So it's great to have techies in the room who understand the law. And that's brilliant. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? I think there's two ways of looking at it. I mean, I think the legislation itself, my mind now is on the next frontier. I mean, June is around the corner, so we don't have a lot of time between now and June. So we don't need to worry too much about that. It's literally around the corner, a matter of weeks now. So really, really exciting. I'm now thinking of the next frontier. So the conversations I'm having are around where else in common law jurisdictions can we scale or at least use the Electronic Trade Documents Bill as a model? Can we do that across the Commonwealth? Where, you know, is, are there any other jurisdictions where we can follow a similar approach? So it's about scaling the approach. I do think it's a very smart piece of legislation. It's not possible in every jurisdiction. We know that. The fact that it doesn't change the base law means you don't have to get into this huge exercise of trying to understand everything that's contained within that law. It's just almost an amendment. And it's a very neat way of modernizing the system, but you keep the foundations the same. You can see how attractive that would be to governments who either don't have the capacity or frankly don't have the time or the political will to go through a major exercise. So I think it offers a really kind of neat solution. And I think other governments will be interested, but we've got to get that word out and go and talk to governments and say, hey, look, we think we've got a solution. And then I think, we, like I said before, it's not going to do everything, but it will give us scale that we haven't had before. So let's leverage that. There are lots of companies who operate on English law. There are areas where you can commerce, you can digitalize all of those commercial trade documents on English law or Singaporean law for that matter. So let's do that. That will take huge slices of the system and then let's work on the rest. But we haven't been able to do it at that scale because you always hit the brick wall on the other side. You know, once that law changes, we've got that ability to go right the way through a supply chain and everything can just simply switch digital. And it's not surprising to me that some corporates are coming to us saying, hey, we've been watching you for a couple of years and thinking this is a way off. We think now's the moment to actually digitalize the whole process end to end. That's the message I think we've got to now sit down with other corporates and say, how do we help you? How, can we actually do that? Just without actually changing the legal system they are operating on, now saying we can just remove all of this process and stuff that's driving everyone nuts. Let's get rid of that and then use those as case studies to go to other jurisdictions and say, well, this is the use case. I think that change in English law is going to put real oxygen and rocket boosters into other jurisdictions to say, look, if you don't get on with it, either people are going to switch over to English law or it's going to put a positive pressure into the system, not a competitive pressure, positive pressure to say, you got to get on with it. Otherwise, your companies are going to lose out because they're not 
grabbing the benefits. Let's communicate that in a good way and say, come with us. Let's get on with the job. I guess what we've got now is a pretty complicated trade tech system. I remember we mapped it out about three years, two and a half, three years ago with, with about 56 projects. I think we probably have about 560 projects now, which actually makes it very, very difficult for banks, corporates, SMEs, and the wider trade ecosystem to kind of navigate who does what. There's actually a question from the audience, which is how does the ICUK and C4DTI plan to provide a platform? But I'm going to rephrase that or information for corporates, banks, legal firms, and governments to participate in, in pilots. I remember someone said earlier, get your sand buckets out and start practicing, start doing pilots. Who would like to say that one? I can get us started. And we've been throwing this idea around. So this is the kind of stuff that I think we can do. And this is how we can help. So, you know, if you're a typical company, you're getting bombarded by people saying, I've got the best solution. And it's really hard to make a decision. You don't know if they're compliant with the international frameworks. You don't know if those systems are interoperable. So it's actually very difficult. And if you make the wrong choice, of course, you may then end up having to re-engineer solutions or even having to get new solutions in. I think one thing we can do, and, and we're actively exploring it right now, actually, is something like a register of solutions that we know are compliant that are all signed up to the principles of open, agnostic, interoperable, are all working with us because we know a lot of them already or even approved by the P&I clubs, the marine insurers. We can do that quite easily and quite quickly. And then we can go and say, look, you can make your own choice who you work with, but these are all proven solution providers who are all working with us and all committed to the time. That would make life a lot easier if you're a small company and then you don't have to worry about are they or are they not. You can just take your choice and off you go. Yeah, that really points to the convening power of the ICC and, and the center. And the thing that I came away from the last three days is that actually quite a lot of the, the sort of trade associations who deal with logistics and, and uh, movements are also in very much the same place as we are. There's a positive um, alphabet soup. Uh, I wrote them down, DCSA, BIMCO, FIATA, IATA, SWIFT, BAFT, ITVA. I think all of them have got strategies and aims to digitalize X percent of their business by year Y. And some of those years are not very far off. 25, for example, 25 by 25, I think is, uh, is BIMCO, isn't it? We need to get each of those organizations in a room. And I think Chris and I will be thinking about how we do that. Say, so, look, you've got this strategy. You've got this amount of resource. You've got these members. We've got these members. We've got this capability. We've got these ambitions. Let's put those together. Not necessarily with another layer of governance and talking and heavy-handed working groups that take a year to figure out who's to sit where. Let's just coordinate the efforts of each of those groups because they'll all have slightly different constituencies, slightly different use cases, and just make sure that each of their activities complement each other and add up to something which is end-to-end so that we don't fall into the trade lens trap and really does work across the piece. And where sensible do so, universalize the propositions and apply them across the piece. And I think if we can do that, we will find that narrow level of narrow band of interoperability that can apply across, I hope, any and all platforms that develop in the future. We're never going to have one platform that rules the world, at least I hope not, because I think that would be a very position to be in. But, but what we can do is ensure that if you want to develop a platform, you can come to us and say, can I interoperate? How do I do that? And we will tell you what the target architecture might need to be. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the targets and quotas piece is actually quite an interesting way to either move the industry via sector, e.g. mining companies or via association, etc., to achieve those targets over a two, five, ten year period. I guess given the ICC's role as a kind of providing the rules that or the guidelines for trade in question from the audience, will the ICC be looking at designing some formal certification process for those tech solutions that are compliant with the bill? Chris? At the end of the day, all options are on the table. We've got the Digital Standards Initiative has completely changed the game because we've suddenly got this convening force at global level to work with all the all the necessary actors. That's amazing. And it's got all the capability that you need. It's simply saying, what do we need? And let's get on with that. You're starting to see reports on what the issues are in particular document areas. Eventually, we'll see data harmonization templates for everybody. You know, I think anything is possible. And certification, by the way, there is a conversation about that going on. I always have a slightly cautionary note around certification is, you know, let's make sure it's an enabler and not just a pile of bureaucracy that then loads into the system. There is a tendency to, you know, say, oh, we need accreditation for X, Y, and Z. I always come from a very simple place. Let's go where the evidence is leading us to. So if there's real evidence that we need certification, let's do it. And I think there probably is. If there's evidence for accreditation, then so be it. But I would say I haven't seen any failure to justify an accreditation scheme. And they are very bureaucratic. So let's be a bit cautious around that and at least challenge it before we do it. ICC is there to enable both at global level and then, you know, the C4DTI is one example, but there are lots of others now in different forms, task forces, working groups, public-private partnerships of varying sorts. It's really exciting ecosystem is starting to grow. And I see our job is very clear. Our job is to implement and it's to coordinate and align, collaborate and get into the detail of how do we do this at speed. If the market says or those around us say, look, we need some help in this area, let's take a look at that. Is that a global solution we need? or is that a national solution we need, or any other option of a solution, then let's not be afraid to do it. As long as we're clear where we're intervening and what we're doing, and it's been driven by the need, then it must be the right thing. Back to Nick's point around this sort of neutrality, this ability to convene, we can do that, but let's work as a collaboration. And then you can spot the problems much faster anyway. And then obviously that really helps us put those solutions into place, whether it's certification or anything else. Training is clearly an area we're going to have to scale up. There's a real skills issue here. So there is training coming in, and there is some already in the market, but we're clearly having to have to all work hard on that everywhere around the world so that actually this just becomes a, a normal skill set. Someone in the comments also made a comment that there is a, a lack of, of skills and knowledge within the banks and the corporates of who does what. That collaboration piece is, is really interesting. And I picked up on that earlier. And back to the business models piece on some of the trade techs, how do we enable an environment where either trade techs or other corporates or competing banks, how do they collaborate with each other rather than competing for the common good. Any thoughts there? A couple of thoughts on it. I mean, I think we've got to be a little bit careful, haven't we? Because it is a competitive market and we've got to be careful what we do so we're not kind of cutting across competition regulations or whatever. If you look at what we're doing in the fraud space, for instance, there's just a very clear regulatory issue. If the banks can see who's applying for finance, then clearly we can identify the fraudsters in double quick time and kick them out of the system. At the moment, you can't do that because the regulator says you can't share X piece of data across the banks. It's back to collaboration and saying, look, what's the bit that's getting in the way? A bit like the uh, electronic trade documents legislation. Let's get that out of the way, remove it. But that's not about changing competition. It's just simply making it easier for us to actually solve a problem. And as long as we're clear on the case for that, I can't see why we wouldn't do it. 
it was great having the food standards agency with us today. That engagement with regulators, sometimes we don't focus on that enough. We've got to bring them to the table. They're part of the community too, right? We're not working against them. We're just trying to say, we can do what you want, but we can do it faster in a much smarter way using technology. Yes, I very much agree with that. The link into government is absolutely critical. And I think that's even just my own personal position. I'm, I'm half government, half ICC. And I think that's very useful because it means I can feed direct into the sort of policy thinking and development process. I'm not saying that I can influence government policy per se, but I can certainly feed in the evidence that our work is adducing and allow that to feed into the policy design process. So I think that's something that uh, we need to build on. But I think but going back to your point about sort of competition, co-competition, or collaboration, whatever. I think we heard from almost everybody over the last three days that not only do they see it as a need to collaborate, but they're actually willing to do it. They're almost asking us, can we do it? Would like to, please. Can you facilitate it? I think I said this a few weeks ago. Nobody is saying to the Centre for Digital Trading and Innovation that we don't need you. They are actually saying, yes, we do need you. We do need you to create that neutral environment in which we can get together with our competitors and work out how much do we need to do collaboratively before we can then safely compete our way to a great solution? The analogy I always bring up is the banks and payment systems. The banks used to set things bilaterally between all of themselves. They suddenly realized that's daft. Let's join in together, have an automated clearinghouse, which enables us to set on a net basis between all of us, transform the whole business. It's sort of swift, if you like. What we're trying to facilitate is a swift trade. It's a brokerage where there can be a sufficient collaboration between the participating parties that provides a basic level of security and digital capability, ease and, and uh, cost and friction reduction, upon which loads of goods, excellent fintechs and uh, banks and others can design services, which will really be commercial and hopefully provide massive benefits to their end users. Thanks. And comment from one of the listeners that the work of the DCSA is a good example yeah. of this collaboration, as is IATA, as is ALICE, the Alliance for Logistics Innovation through Collaboration in Europe. So lots of really good examples there. Nick, what are your key messages to policymakers in the room, both within the UK government and beyond, to achieve that future vision of cheaper, faster and simpler? In a word, design it from the outside in. I've got a great deal of respect for a lot of my colleagues in the civil service to do an absolutely brilliant job. They do not know trade as well as trade does. I think that applies to customs. Customs, they know customs, but customs is an aspect of trade. It's not the other way around. We need to look at, as policy designers and decision makers, we need to look at what trade is doing anyway, and then build programs like Single Trade Window to be delivered into a world which will have changed in the way that other government priorities will suggest it needs to have done. And that might be quite different from how it is now. In anticipation of that, you can steer that change and get delivery of quite a lot of your policy intent without you actually having to do very much other than influence what trade is going to be doing anyway. There's a real collaboration designed from the outside in. Listen to traders, listen to other jurisdictions, listen to international bodies before you decide what your policy design can and should be. I'm not saying that trade has all the answers, but I think you would end up in a better position for having that broader view than if you just tried to solve those issues within the confines of an inter-government, intra-government government, intra -government uh, debate. Thank you.
Chris, question now more aimed at a lot of the lenders in the room, because I don't think removing the four billion piece of paper log jammed in the trade system is as simple as we say. There's the Basel IV framework, there's the fraud compliance KYC piece, there's the operational cost of onboarding a small business. So I don't think it's going to be as easy as everyone says it is to just remove the paper. What's your, what are your key messages for the banks here? I think it's actually not so much for the banks, it's for everyone who's outside the banks. You know, we've got to a position where we know why the regulations and so on came in in 2008 after 9-11, anti-money laundering, all of that, AML, KYC, we get it. But what we've ended up with is an absolute spaghetti soup. And we've just tied the financial institutions up in complete knots. They're trying to do the right thing but they're under so many kind of tight regulations. It's not helping our cause. And we see that all the time. We particularly see it in the UK, actually, where you know the regulators are looking at the macro system. We get that, market stabilization, we get it. But trade finance is a low to zero risk activity. We do not need to wrap that up in knots like we do in higher risk forms of finance. It's about proportionality. You don't need to tell a banker what the process is. It's a nightmare. I mean, we've heard a lot of it today, actually. There's just a lot of process that's not necessary. It's more for us in the trade space, because I don't see this as a banking issue. I say that quite a lot. This is a trade issue. If our banks can't help underpin the trade and finance the trade, we've got a real problem. But we've got government policies pretty much everywhere, really, saying, I want to increase exports, I want to increase trade. And then we've just tied up all the financial institutions in a bunch of knots. Well, that's not helpful. We need to help our banks. They can be as efficient as they possibly can. No one is saying we're going to break regulations at all. We're just saying, let's do it smarter. That will release more capital into the market, work short-term working capital in particular, low-risk finance for businesses. And of course, guess what? We'll probably end up with more trade. We've got to join those two up. It's a trade problem, not a finance problem. But I think the banks need help. It's very, very complex, very highly regulated, loads of legacy systems. We need to work with it. We can't just say you're going to change that overnight. It's not going to work like that. We have to build the case, support the banks to build the case. Why do we need investment in what part of the system. It's an evolution, not a revolution. And let's do this together. Nick, I guess adding to that, what's your message to some of the corporates and SMEs who are potentially gearing up for the legal reform changes coming in June? If they are gearing up for the legal reforms, they'll be a rare breed, I can say, I think. <laughs> I honestly don't think most people will have heard of them. I just want them to just open the door a little bit. We don't want you to change everything tomorrow. We don't want to throw away your ERP systems and go completely different the day after tomorrow. We've got the support of the legal guys. We've got the support of Parliament. We've got the support of the banks and the logistics providers and the ports. So there's an awful lot of quite authoritative people. This isn't just me and a few techie advocates saying this. There's a quite a large bunch of people saying this is safe. This can be done. So listen to them and say, leave it with us. We will make sure that this can be safely done and we'll come back to you when we've got a really effective solution. But in the meantime, what we want you to do is to just open your minds a little to the possibilities and start thinking about how you would respond to a world in which things are easier, cheaper and simpler. Thank you very much. So now I'm going to fast forward to one year's time at the 2024 C4 DTI Digital Trade Conference and Awards. To basically, how do we avoid the exact same panel sessions that we've had, which were excellent over the last three days, but how do we avoid a repetition of that? What are the key steps to make sure that the content next year is going to be, you know, we're going to move the dial? Chris, perhaps over to you. 
some of it we do need to keep doing, right? We need to keep explaining and sharing best practice. We can't keep giving the same case studies. It'll be new case studies. But we do need to keep sharing the knowledge, bringing people together. I'd like to think that next year, we've expanded this year. I'd like to think we expand next year, bring new countries. We'll have the Germans with us. We'll have the US. There'll be others with us. And that will make it really exciting because it enriches the conversation. It's a demonstration that we're all in this together. So I think next year will be really quite different. And actually, I think we'll start to see examples of quite a different scale, which is going to be really exciting. The big one is corporates for me. We've done a lot of work with the tech communities, the legal communities, the finance communities. It's all about the corporate now. How can we put the corporate? uh, So we've done a lot of work in the frameworks, of course. So we've got all the tools. We've got all the frameworks. We don't have all the answers, but we've got a heck of a lot more than we had before. And now I think it's about sitting down with the corporate and say, how do we help you? And the next year, let's come back with 20 corporates who have all done this and said, I've done my whole supply chain. I hate to say it because obviously we want to work with all companies, but we do need some big names because it catches people's attention. We need Rolls Royce. We need Jaguar Land Rover. We need Ford. We need Nissan. We need these big guys to come in and say, look, I've done it. And I'm also doing this with my supply chain. And I'd like to think that we'd actually start to get into exciting areas like contracts. Can we use commercial contracts, model clauses to help accelerate the change down the supply chains and then use that as examples of how we do this at speed and scale. I think next year will be quite different. I'm pretty bullish, partly because I know the conversations that are going on. You know, you haven't seen this week necessarily. There's a lot of contact going on, so I'm pretty confident. I agree with Chris. Next year's conference, we will have fewer banks, fewer platform providers, fewer policy makers. We'll have people like Justin up there saying, we did this, we proved it works, we're going to do this, come along and join us. There's nothing to be scared of. And I agree with Chris, if we can get half a dozen of those FTSE 100 companies actually in the room saying, we're doing this, we want our supply chains and our customers to join us on this. In fact, we might even incentivize you to do so, then we will really move the dial. And I think that would be a measure of the success of the center and the work of the ICC if we could have more of those participating next year. Just to summarize, I guess, your conversation, totally taking the comments from the crowd rather than my own thoughts. But someone said thought leadership, which spans the globe and bridges the public private stakeholders and access is key to the digital agenda. And kudos to both of yourselves and keeping up the tireless work is not an easy journey, but it will make trade simpler, faster, cheaper, inclusive and sustainable. And to someone else's comments as well, I think we just need to help corporates help themselves and to think more about improving funding and training their supply chain. This will lead to more people helping speed up this agenda through and to understand the benefits and bring on those SMEs. I think we've got the toolkits, we've got the standards. I think that's been the theme of kind of 2022, 2023. We missed a little bit yesterday when this came up. Is don't forget this will be exponential. The moment was actually a surprisingly small group of people who are kind of driving thought leadership. You wait until we get other countries coming in. It will bring a whole bunch of new ideas into what's going on that we haven't even thought of. Once you get more companies going, it will bring a whole load more capacity into the system. So this is going to grow exponentially. It's not going to be a dribble and we're just going to gradually improve. It's going to be a curve and it's going to get exciting when some of those brains come to the table. There's a lot of smart people out there who will bring their own thoughts and and thought leadership. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And I think just to support that curve, five words here that I think are the key themes in terms of to get us to next year. More education and trading here. We need to showcase more case studies. We need to accelerate the adoption of MLETR or equivalent in governance countries around the world. We need to think about open, interoperable and and agnostic solution. And finally, we need to really think about that registry and building that registry of companies that are compliant and support the law. Nick, Chris, thank you very much. And back over to you, ICC UK team.
Well, thanks very much, Deepesh. I think this brings us to the end of three days of what I hope has been a really useful and progressive in the sense of making progress. We've had a fantastic range of speakers. I'm sure, Chris, you've got some details on the number of uh, attendees we've had, the number of countries that have been represented. But what I've kind of taken away from this three days is that we're in the right place. We need to keep going. We've not got all the answers by any means, but I think with your help, we can get more of them over the next 12 months. And I very much look forward to working with you to do just that. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.